I am grateful to the pastors today for giving me the honor and the privilege to open up God's Word to you, and I'm also grateful to my family who gave me extra time away to be able to, to spend studying this passage. And on that note, I just want to remind you as a church family that the pastors who regularly preach on Sunday mornings make a lot of sacrifices for them to be able to cut the word straight and to give it to you in a powerful way. And the families have to make a sacrifice a lot of times for that uh, time uh, away from the dad and the, and the husband. And so uh, just be grateful and be praying for your pastors as they preach week in and, and week out. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. This morning's text is Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. Two weeks ago, in verses 1 to 7, we understood what it means to have a gospel identity. Last week, in verses 8 through 15, we understood what it means to have gospel longing. And this morning, in verses 16 and 17, we will understand what it means to have gospel power. So hear the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you will bless the reading and exposition of your word. We pray that you will fill us with the Holy Spirit, that you will give us spiritual eyes to see your truth, to fill it in our hearts, to rejoice in it, and help us to respond to it accordingly in the power of the Holy Spirit for the cause of Jesus Christ. Amen. With the Mount Ephraim nature of this passage before us, I feel like today's sermon can either be like a pep rally on one hand or uh, a war room preparing for battle on the other hand. And, and, and both would have their place. Like there is a place for pep rallies. There's a place for just celebration and excitement and a reminder where, where we might fly over the text at 30,000 feet and just get so excited. I remember in, in 1990 through 1993, I went to like 40 pep rallies when I was in high school, and I loved every one of them. I mean, the band would be playing Eye of the Tiger as you're walking out in your, like in your uniform jersey, and the fans and the, you know, the students are excited, and you know, we got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? And, you know, and, and then at the end, the playing of the alma mater gives you all this kind of pride in your school as you go out and play the rival school that night. Like, that's good, and it has its place. But as a war room, as, a, as, as kind of like this strategy room for war, you know, it's, it's more tactical. It's, it's more about devising a strategy or understanding a strategy to figure out how to win a battle and and I've chosen, as you might imagine from me, not the pep rally, but, but the strategy war room this morning for one major reason. We're not playing a ball game, we're in a war. We are in a war. 
And we've got to understand not only that we're in it, but we've got to understand how to win it. And so, if you think about what we're doing right now, we are in a battle room, and we're going to leave this room at some point in the next two hours, and we are going to enter the battle. And so we've got to understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're doing it, because this is the thing. We have the most powerful weapon ever devised, ever. And so let's begin this war room strategy by understanding the central topic of the passage, and that is the gospel. Paul says in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he says in verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So what is the gospel? Here's our working definition of the gospel in simple terms. It's the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus. It is the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus. It is not the good news of salvation through good works. It is not the good news of salvation through a moral life. It is not the good news of salvation through even, listen, a religious life. As a matter of fact, religion is man's frustrating search for God, while the gospel is God's successful pursuit of man. Religion is what sinful man tries to do for a holy God. But the gospel is what a holy God has already done for sinful man. Religion is powerless because it's driven by man, whereas the gospel is powerful because it's driven by God from heaven. And so on that note, on that note, Paul describes the gospel as what? If you look down at verse 16, as the power of God. The power of God. That word power is dunamis in the Greek. Dunamis. It is where we derive our word dynamite. Now you must know they did not have dynamite in the first century, so Paul is not saying that it's dynamite. Well, that's just where we get our word. But this word dunamis is used 119 times in the New Testament. And this is what you need to know about it. And if you're a note taker, it would be great if you wrote it down. It is the inherent power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature. The inherent power residing in a thing because of the virtue of its very nature. And let me give an example of of what, what that means. A lightning bolt. A lightning bolt has dunamis. Okay, it has power. There is inherent power residing in a lightning bolt by virtue of its nature. It is different from a power line. A power line has no electric power if it doesn't have an electric current running through it from its power source, right? An extension cord has no electric power in it if it doesn't have an electric current running through it from its power source. But a lightning bolt has dunamis, has power, because that's what a lightning bolt is, okay? Given that, the gospel has inherent power because that's what the gospel is. 
It is the very power of God. So, with that, we're going to ask the question, how powerful is it? How powerful really is the gospel? If you're a Christian in this room, you are not going to say, ah, the gospel's not very powerful. Nobody would say that in here. But when we investigated a little further and digged a little further about what we really believe about how powerful it is, we might struggle to be able to string a few sentences in a row about its power. And so today, we're going to let Paul answer the question, how powerful really is the gospel? And the first way in which the gospel is so powerful is that it saves sinners. It saves sinners. He says it is the power of God for salvation. For salvation. In the most basic sense, this word salvation means deliverance. It means to be saved, to be rescued. When I was in the sixth grade, I was in a class where I met some new kids, some of my classmates, and some of them went to the the local Baptist church, and they were going roller skating one Wednesday night, and they said, Ryan, why don't you go roller skating with us? And so I met them up at the church, uh, and we all piled into the, to the bus, and I went to the very back of the bus, as we always try to go to the back of the bus, because mysterious, crazy, wonderful, secretive things go on the back of the bus, right? And so we're back there, but instead of mysterious, crazy, secretive things going, they corner me in the back of the bus, and they ask me, Ryan, are you saved? Have you been saved yet? You've got to be saved. Come on, are you going to get saved? And I'm sitting here, not from a Baptist background at all, and I was just like, saved from what? Saved from who? Saved to what? I didn't know I needed to be rescued. I thought we were going roller skating. <laughs> and for like two minutes, you know, they're just, in the, but they, they, they were telling me I needed it, but they couldn't exactly formulate the idea of what that really meant. And then after that time, we Talked about Jolly Ranchers and, you know, what happened on Knight Rider last night. But at that point, I was alerted to this realization that, 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 that there must be this situation where a rescue is necessary. It would, it would be like a, a process by which God would provide this, this, this revelation of this need for salvation over a period of years until I would really experience it when I was a teenager in high school. But it... In its most basic sense, it means to deliver. But this is what I want to rescue us from this morning. Just kind of a play on words here. I don't want any of us to, to just think, oh, you got to be saved. You need to be saved. Saved from what? Don't know. Saved to who? From what? Like, we need to know. We need, like, if, we're, if we have this inherent power of God, we, we need to realize it. Now, I could spend a while on this, but I've decided not to. But I want you to know that basically salvation is deliverance from the power of sin in your life to the power of Jesus' resurrection. It is deliverance from the pollution of sin in your life to the purity of Christ's righteousness. And it is deliverance from the penalty of sin to the promise of the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. I would love to tease that out, but we're about to tease something else out that is even incredibly more beautiful. Because listen, salvation is not a flat thing. 
It is not a box that you check. It is not a contract that you sign. Listen to me. Salvation is like a diamond. It is the most beautiful, pristine, glorious diamond you've ever laid your eyes on. Every edge, every side, every place, every angle has a unique beauty in and of itself. And and, and its magnificence just draws you closer and closer to God's beauty. And so this is what I want to tell you what your salvation, the salvation that Paul is referring to includes. It includes your election. Before the foundation of the world, before you were ever born, God chose you to ultimately belong to him. It was a decision of divine love and grace to save you. And election is the beginning of salvation. It involves regeneration. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no spiritual heartbeat. We had no viable life. And the life that we did live was a living death. And God, the Holy Spirit, instantaneously created within each of us a new spiritual life. He gave us a new heartbeat with a new pulse. And so regeneration is the lifeblood of our salvation. So election is the beginning of it. Regeneration is the lifeblood of it. Your salvation involves redemption. You were in spiritual bondage. You lived in the slave house of sin. You were shackled to sin and to darkness. And what happened? God in Jesus Christ came and rescued you from that slave house, brought you out of that slavery and into joy and life and and love with him. And so redemption is the beauty of your salvation. Justification involves your salvation. You were legally guilty before God. You stood before God, and he would have to say, guilty, guilty, guilty. But when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God looks and verbally declares you to be righteous, righteous, righteous. And so justification is the declaration of your salvation. Salvation involves your adoption. Like, in the depravity of your sinfulness, You had no spiritual family. The only family that you had was a group of, a gang of like-minded, like-hearted rebels that ran away from God. you You deserved that. But the good father came in and, listen to me, legally adopted you and placed you in his family. And bestowed on you his protection, his love, his care, his grace. And so if you think about in the terms of salvation, adoption is the sweetness of your salvation. It involves your sanctification. Like, God didn't just save you and put you up in one of his trophy cases and just let you just collect dust up there and every now and again bring you off that trophy case, dust you off, and put you back up there as if you're some inanimate object. No, he saved you to walk this thing out, to walk this joy and worship and love out so that other people can see what it means to experience the power of God. And ultimately, it involves your glorification. Like one day... 
If you trust Christ, if you believe in him, you will be ushered in to the very presence of King Jesus and you will behold him and you will be like him and you will enjoy him. There will be no more sin, no more frustration, no more anger, no more depression, no more anxiety, no more any of that. It will be all worship and all joy all the time and that includes the salvation that you have when you put your faith in Jesus. So when Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for your salvation, it has that in mind. And that is a lot. So it saves sinners like you and me. I I just want us to understand this. It's one thing to understand that it saves sinners. It's another thing that that involves election and regeneration and redemption and adoption and justification and sanctification and glorification. That's huge. That's massive. It doesn't get any bigger than that. The second way in which the gospel is powerful is that it shapes believers. It shapes believers. Some years ago, I had a friend I'll call Kyle, and uh, he, uh, he was in his mid-30s, and he started attending church with his wife, and he listened to a number of sermons in a row at this church, and one day there was this invitation given, this altar call, as it were, and he, he felt like he needed to go down and be saved. And so he walked down the aisle, and he bent down, and he prayed a prayer that one of the pastors led him to pray, and he was, quote, saved. From that point on, Kyle did not attend the church services. He actually volunteered for parking lot duty, and he would be one of these guys wearing the vests and and uh, driving the golf cart and people from a long way away. By the way, where is our golf cart at Grace Fellowship? <laughs> I was just kidding. But, but he would be that guy. And he gave up Sunday morning worship services and Wednesday night teaching services to serve in the parking lot. And he said this. He told me this. He said, I know where I'm going. I, I know I'm saved now. I don't want to take up a seat anymore, maybe for somebody else. And so in Kyle's mind, he had punched his ticket. He, he had gotten his deal. He, he grabbed the T-shirt. And it was, it was basically all over at that point. right? And what Kyle failed to understand is what Paul absolutely understood. And y'all listen to me. Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians need the gospel. So look down at verse 16 at the very beginning, the word for For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is a conjunction that your English teachers taught you about. And that conjunction connects the message in verses 8 through 15 to the message of 16 and 17. Look at verse 15. Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Well, who's in Rome? Well, look at verse 8. See who's in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you 
because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul is telling a group of people who have this renowned faith in Jesus Christ that he can't wait to get to them to preach the gospel to them. Well, that's a little different than what my friend Kyle thought about the gospel. Well, what's the deal with that? Well, you see, the gospel not only rescues you from sin and judgment, it gives you a life of purpose. It gives you a life of power. And dare I say it, it gives you a life of passion. That's what the gospel does for you. I say, well, well, what happens if believers don't, don't swim in the waters of the gospel? I, I, I tell you what can happen is that your heart can go from this big to this big. Your, your mind, your thoughts about God can, can go from expansive to shriveling up to not even thinking about God. Your, 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 your desires can, can go from loving God and wanting God and being passionate about God to, to finding all these different hobbies and things that you, you're now more interested in than that. And so I want, I want us to just right now just, just ask this little question. How does the gospel shape you? And, and you can write this down. First, it, it humbles your heart before God. It humbles your heart. Like, we have a natural ability to think a lot of ourselves. Like, we are, in, we are just inclined, we are hardwired to enthrone our own thoughts, enthrone our own opinions, our own desires. Like, we are hardwired to be self-righteous and self-reliant. Tell me, tell me I'm, I'm lying here. We always see ourselves as David and the people who stand against us as Goliath. We see ourselves as Samuel and those other people on the other side as the Amalekites. We, we, we see ourselves in, in any picture, whether it's Joseph. We see ourselves as Joseph and everybody who stands on some other side as the ten brothers who throw Joseph in the pit. I mean, for those of you who aren't necessarily educated in the Old Testament, like we see ourselves as Superman and we see everybody else as Lex Luthor. Like that's, that's how we view ourselves naturally, hardwired. But what happens? The gospel comes into us and shows us what? That we're broken, we're sinful, we're corrupt, we need grace. The gospel puts us in our place and it positions us in a place where we need mercy. And this is what the gospel does for me. The gospel comes in and says, Ryan, you too need forgiveness. You too need mercy. You too need divine grace. That's what the gospel does for me. That's what the gospel does for you. Because without the gospel, my heart will get hard and small and self-justified. Second, under this, what else does it do for you? How does it shape you? It centers your heart upon God. It centers your heart upon God. And the gospel is like a compass. It points you to God. No matter where you are, no matter what situation you're in, no matter what circumstances that you're underneath, the gospel will always point you back to God. It's like a magnet. It will pull you closer and closer and closer to God. It has a spiritual force that draws you in to fellowship with God. It's like a, a pacemaker. 
My grandfather had a pacemaker when I was a kid. But this is what the gospel does. The gospel acts as a pacemaker in your life so that whenever your spiritual heart gets out of beat, out of rhythm, little palpitations, the gospel comes in, and look, it just starts beating like this with God's heart. That's what the gospel does. But the further you get from the gospel, the further away you get from God's love for you in Jesus Christ, the further you get from God and his heart. So it centers your heart upon God. Let me state a couple more things here. It equips you for spiritual fruit when you meditate on the gospel. It equips you for spiritual fruit. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, if we think about the fruit of the Holy Spirit that Paul addresses in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, I've got notes for all of those. I won't go into all of them, but let's just think about a few. Let's think about love. Okay? Without the gospel, I say the word love, you have all these thoughts in your mind. Love today in our culture is like this warm, fuzzy, exciting feeling that you have when you think about somebody or other people in general or as a group, you, 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 you get this warmth that comes over and, and you're just like so excited about these people or this person and, and you love them and you love them. Oh, it's, it's wonderful to be around them and to share life with them. Oh, you love them. But when that warmth over time goes away or they offend you or do something like you don't feel warm anymore. And so that love, it, you know, it begins to cool off and so you begin to look for maybe other people and other things to, to love so that you can get that feeling again. But when it's the gospel, when the good news of Jesus Christ comes in, and you have the manifestation of love so that where God the Son comes to planet Earth on a rescue mission and sees before him all these dirty, rotten sinners like you and I, and he goes to the cross and he sacrifices himself and substitutes himself and bears the righteous wrath of Almighty God in his place, he's not feeling warm and fuzzies. He's not having this real, like, oh, I feel so great about this. What is he doing? He is passionately pursuing the highest good of those he's made the decision to love. That's what real love is. That's what the gospel does. You, you minus all the warm, fuzzy stuff. It doesn't mean that it can't be emotional. It just means that you've got to channel what real love is through the gospel of Jesus. Now, joy would be the same thing. Peace. Like, this is the thing. If you have real peace in your life, this is what you have. You have a heart calm because of Calvary's storm. That's what you have. Without Calvary's storm and without you appropriating that into your heart, you don't have peace. You've got a momentary feeling that all is right in the world because of your circumstances and the people that are revolving around your life. That's what you have. Now, when that gets upset, when you lose a loved one, when your best friend gets cancer, when you don't get the job that you wanted or you get the job that you wanted and, and, and your boss is a horse's patoot, then what, where, where's your peace now? Where is it now? 
Well, let's see, if you've got the gospel, you know, th this is the thing. That peace that you have is not based on great circumstances. It's based on a great Savior. And when you've got a great Savior, your peace travels. When you don't have a great Savior, your peace don't travel. Okay. Are we, you can maybe just write these uh, next one or two down and just meditate on them later. But let me tell you what else the gospel does. It rescues you from idolatry. It rescues you from idolatry, and it empowers you for mission. It empowers you for mission. And under that one, I will say that the gospel ignites a fire in your heart by showing you that God's priority is to save a people for himself from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. And when you appropriate that reality, it makes you passionate about the same thing that God is passionate about. And so church, church, we must never get over the gospel we must never get beyond the gospel, and we, we must never go without the gospel because it shapes our lives. Amen to that? Okay. We're going to write a fast slide from here on out. Third, the gospel shatters barriers. It shatters barriers. Paul says, for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek... What is a barrier? A barrier is anything that obstructs progress, anything that, that restricts access. That's what a barrier is. And what the gospel does, it, it, it comes in and knocks down all these barriers. It knocks down religious barriers, economic barriers, personal trauma barriers. I mean, think about it. I mean, there, there, we know that life can be hard. It can be cruel. It can be downright ab abusive. Like, like, there are people who, who just, who have struggled and been neglected and abused and, and, and hurt. And like, that is, that is so hard. Life, it can be difficult. I, I, I would bet that if there's 250 plus people here today, there might be 25 to 50 who haven't really suffered. But the rest of us know what it's like to suffer. We know what it's like to, to experience some significant pain in our lives. And, and what does the gospel do? The gospel knocks down the, 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 the inability to experience God's goodness. And it says, look to the cross. Experience God's love. Hang on because he's not going to forsake you. He's not going to leave you. He's with you because he was with you by sending his son on the cross. And, and, his, and his son was saying, I'm going to be with them forever through my spirit. See, listen, um... When we talk about all these barriers, I just kind of did a little bit of catalog of some people who had some barriers. Saul of Tarsus, who wrote this letter, he was religious, legalistic, self-righteous, and moral. And the gospel shattered all of that. The Samaritan woman in John 4 was immoral, hopeless, and shameful. And the gospel shattered that. Zacchaeus was materialistic, greedy, and deceptive. And Jesus Christ, one sight of him, one afternoon with him, shattered all of that. The Ethiopian eunuch was confused and lonely and lost and searching. And he turns, buys a, a scroll, Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. And that man gets saved and has purpose for the rest of his life. 
That crazy man at the land of the Gerasenes who's running around naked, unshackled because nobody can withhold him. One side of Jesus, one interaction with Jesus, and that man is humble in his right mind and becomes the first Gentile missionary for Jesus. What, what do all those people have in common? They have in common the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it transformed them. And, and that has just to say, church, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The tomb is empty for everyone. And I know that Paul didn't say this, but I believe that Paul would have agreed with this when, when a, a preacher, I guess in years past, said, I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who will save anybody. Okay? That's what Paul is getting across. There is nobody beyond the reach of the gospel. All right, the fourth way in which it's powerful is that the gospel severs fears. It severs fears. And you can see that down um, in verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't fear embarrassment. I don't have any reluctance to share the gospel because of some potential humiliation that I might experience. I mean, they may laugh at me. They may scoff at me. They may reject me. They may turn their backs on me. But I'm not ashamed. I'm not going to be embarrassed. Now, I may be shamed by them, but I'm not going to be ashamed of him, Paul is saying. I don't fear those things because the gospel of Jesus Christ is what saves people from their sins and delivers them into the presence of Christ. I uh, had an interesting middle school experience. I, I found myself as I was writing this yesterday, I got a lot of stories from middle school. It was a, it was a pretty painful experience, but when I was like in the 5th, 6th, and 7th grade, I got put out into the hallway a lot by my teachers. And the thing was, was like I, I, would, um, I would go into the hallway and I would find like the tallest trash can or the, like where the water fountains were, the kind of the wall went in so that the water fountain was in, inset. And I would try to like slide between the water fountain and the wall because if the principal or the vice principal were to walk by, I would get in more trouble. You know, they would ask me questions. Why are you out here, son? They might bring me back to the, to the office, you know, whether, you know, they paddled me or called my parents or whatever. I knew. So I was, I, was, I was really always afraid in the hallway when I was out there. But this thing happened. And I don't know why it happened, but the, the vice principal, I guess, chose me to be her assistant when I was in the eighth grade. And, and, and it was the last period of the day. And... Every day I would put this card on my shirt, and it said assistant to the vice principal. And she would give me these messages that I'm sure were like the most important messages in the world. They would go all over the school to teachers and, and administrators and stuff like that, and I would carry it. But y'all, I would walk up and down those halls with my chest out, very proud and completely unafraid wherever I was going. Why? Because I represented her. I had this card. I was essentially her ambassador. There was no shame in my game at that point. And that is precisely what the gospel has done for us. 
It has brought us into a place where we have no reason to be ashamed because we represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What in the world are you worried about when you're talking to somebody who looks just like you? All right, it severs our fears. All right, let's look at uh, the next one. What does the gospel do? It, it sanctions faith alone. It sanctions faith alone. Now, there are a lot of different nuanced definitions of sanction, so I want to tell you by that I mean to authorize, approve, or allow. That's how I'm using the word sanctions. The gospel sanctions, quote, faith alone, end quote. Look back down at your passage. He says, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes or exercises faith. Same word that's being used, all right? He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then he says, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so what the gospel comes in and says is that salvation is not by works. Like you can't help enough older people across the street for you to get it. It's not by morality. Like you can't keep enough of the Ten Commandments. It's not by ethics. You can't have high enough integrity to possess it. It's not by religion. You can't go to enough church services in order to achieve it. It's not by charity. You can't give enough money away to, in order to please God to gain it. It's none of that. It is by one simple thing. It is by faith and faith alone. Now, man, we could spend a long time on faith. But let's define faith in this way for our purposes right now. Faith is trusting in the person, provision, and promise of the Lord Jesus. Faith is trusting in the person, the provision, and the promise of the Lord Jesus. Now let's think about that. It means that you understand that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that He is the Son of Man, that He is the King, that He is the Lord, that He is the Savior. That he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. And when you hear that, you're like, yes, that's who Jesus is. And then you realize not only do you trust his identity, like who he is, you trust his provision, what he's done. John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You realize that what Jesus has done has walked up to the top of Golgotha, had his hands nailed and his feet nailed, and there, as a spotless, stainless, sinless lamb, he is, is essentially murdered and executed in your place, making provision for your salvation. You believe that, and then you believe the promises that he makes. He, you know, come to me, all you who are weary and weighted down, and I will give you rest. He makes promises like, oh, all that the Father has given to me, I will take, and I will never cast them out. Those are promises that Jesus makes that you believe when he says it. And so you believe who he is, you believe what he's done, and you believe everything that he has said. That's faith. That's faith. And so, if you think about it, faith is an exchange. It's an exchange 
of all that you have for all that he is and all that you are for all that he is. That's what faith is. Charles Spurgeon said, faith is the eye that looks to Christ. Faith is the hand that reaches to Christ. Faith is the mouth that confesses Christ. Faith faith is the feet that runs to Christ. That's what faith is. The gospel sanctions faith alone. Now, if you look back down at verse 17, he says, from faith to faith. From faith to faith. The idea there is it is by faith from start to finish. From faith would indicate the starting line. To faith would, would, would include the daily faith. From faith could be your justification. To faith is your sanctification. From faith to faith, it's all faith. And to underscore that, he says, I'm going to reach back to Habakkuk. I'm going to reach back to that Old Testament prophet. And I'm going to quote the Lord's reply to Habakkuk when Habakkuk was wondering, where are you, God? The the greedy are having their way among us. The violent are killing us. The the murderous are going around and, 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 and eating up and destroying righteous people. Where in the world are you? And what the Lord replies is, you need to understand that when you can't understand me and when you can't um, see me, you will also have faith even in that because the righteous live by faith. That's how they live. So church, I would say this. This is a good word for us. When you can't see God and when you can't understand God, draw on your faith that you've experienced because you know he's gracious and you know that you have the power of God, draw on that because you're going to have those valleys. You're going to have those dips and you've got to draw on and live by faith. Okay, sixth, the gospel secures your righteousness. It secures your righteousness. The root word for righteousness means conformity to a standard. It means conformity to a standard. Conformity to a standard. The standard, like it's, it's almost like if you think about it in its, in its, in its, in its root, rudimentary form, that word righteous means standard. Okay, so it, it draws back from Bible times. Think about it in terms of a marketplace. And, and I, here I am, I, I go to the marketplace and I need a measure or, or a standard of grain. And I ask the salesperson, hey, could you give me a measure of grain? And so the salesperson gets this all the time. So the salesperson takes the grain and stands by the scales. And on this side of the scales just pours, pours the grain out. But because he's poured it so many times, he knows basically how much a measure of grain is. But he pours it out, guesstimates. And on the other side of the scales, he grabs that rock that is a measure it is the standard. And he, he puts that rock on this side of the scales. And, and all of a sudden, there's this thing happening, up and down and up and down, and, and, and you're starting to wonder, okay, did he, did he put too much grain there and get more than a standard or, or not enough? And, and you just kind of wait, weighing like that. Because this over here is the standard. It is the measure. And, and what we need to understand is that God spiritually, is the standard. 
His holiness is the measure. It is, it is the plumb line, as it were. And when we put our life, when we put our goodness, when we put all our good works and our ethics and our integrity and our generosity and all of that, we put it over here on this side of the scales, bam! Bam! And all that stuff just falls to the ground and you can't even see it anymore because you and I cannot fathom the infinite righteousness of Almighty God. And yet, God comes to us and says, it's okay. It's all right. You don't measure up. What I'm going to do is I'm going to convey my righteousness onto you. I'm going to declare that in Jesus' holy life, his sinless way of living, his perfect harmony with me as he walked in on this planet all the way up to the cross, I'm going to convey all of his sinlessness and all of his perfection and all of his generosity and all of his integrity and all of his morality onto you. And I'm going to treat him like he's lived your life and I'm going to treat you like you've lived his life and you will have righteousness from here on out. That's it. That's what he's done. And so the gospel secures your righteousness. It does it for you. That's the idea. Finally, church, the gospel showcases God's righteousness. It showcases God's righteousness. You see, in verse 17, Paul says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. It is revealed. Because you see, not only is God's righteousness a sense of, of standardness, a, a sense of, of, of the plumb line, so to speak, it's not just that. God's righteousness has a side to it that is saving, that is merciful, that is delivering, that is gracious. I mean, some people even understand God's righteousness as, as his saving justice. And what and what happens here, Paul says, is that when you experience the gospel and you experience what we just talked about with the scales, then God's righteousness is revealed, is put on display. That, is, that, that word there in the Greek is where we get our word apocalypse. Uh, apocalypso, it is the revelation of God's righteousness. The gospel puts on display God's saving justice. That's what it does. The pinnacle point of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus at Calvary. And so what's happening is God is, is exercising his righteous standard and the wrath that that brings upon Jesus on one hand, but on the other hand, he's exercising his saving love, his gracious disposition, his merciful acts towards sinners who will believe in what Jesus is actually doing at this point. And so it's this two-sided nature, and it puts God's righteousness on display. Dave Harvey wrote a book on marriage. Um, it was called When Sinners Say I Do. It was an incredibly helpful book to me. I've used it many times in marriage counseling. But in that book, he has a chapter titled The Fog of War 
and the law of sin. The fog of war and the law of sin. I want to just read an excerpt. July 21st, 1861. The first major battle of the Civil War started before dawn. The roar of artillery seemed to awaken everyone in Virginia as the Union and Confederate armies clashed among the farms by a stream called Bull Run. But a strange thing happened as the battle intensified. Hundreds of Washingtonians, senators, representatives, government workers, and their families, all dressed in leisure apparel and carrying picnic baskets, they raced to the hill near Manassas to watch the battle unfold. Armed with opera glasses to survey the fighting, they chatted amicably as men were slaughtered on the field below. One northern sympathizer commented, That is splendid. Oh my, is that not first rate? I guess we'll be in Richmond this time tomorrow. Spirits were high. Toasts were raised. All in all, they thought it a superb way to spend a summer afternoon. Suddenly, a rebel counterattack led by a hard-charging cavalry swept over the Union flank, putting the army to flight. Even untrained eyes, the implications were obvious. The serene picnic ground was about to become a battle zone. Mass confusion erupted as the spectators fled just moments before the Confederate wave washed over the hill. The entertainment was over. The battle was on them. And the picnickers discovered something at that moment about war. You can't be close to it and safe from it at the same time. You can't be close to it and safe from it at the same time. Only the naive think they can stand on the sidelines of warfare and merely be entertained. When war enters the scene, everything it touches becomes a battlefield. Well, this is what I want us to realize today. The Christian life is a war. When you made the decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ, you made the decision to enter a battle. And it is no picnic ground, it is a battleground. And those who are properly equipped will win the battle. The greatest news of all is that you and I have the most powerful artillery ever conceived in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must wield it, we must carry it, we must know it, we must declare it, and we must fight the gates of hell with nothing less than it. And if we do, we will win the battle because God has already won the war. Let's pray. Father.